So uh, today we're going to take a slight break from going through the book of Revelation, and we're actually going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today. So you can uh, start turning to that. The reason that we're doing this is uh, today is the day that we are going to honor our graduates. Normally we would have done that uh, far earlier in the year at the end of May, um, but as you know, plans changed very early on, and this was supposed to be the weekend where they were hoping to have the graduation ceremony. Uh, that didn't get to happen, at least not in person in the way they usually do. Uh, however, we're still going to honor our graduates today, and we're going to do that um, after after uh, I am done with the sermon. Um, but I wanted to take a look at First Thessalonians today uh, because... Um, I think it has a lot to say to um, graduates and to seniors. Uh, it's a unique phase of life where you have been trained up in your family and in the church, and you are reaching this point where you're about to launch into adulthood fully uh, and completely, where you are fully responsible for yourself in a unique way. And so I wanted to look at that. And as I was looking at what to preach this week, one of the things that came into my mind is just these graduation uh, commencement speeches. Uh, and as I looked through a couple of them, I, uh, I began to realize that I could sum up the stereotypical commencement speech into two different categories. Now, uh, um, I do admit that this is a sweeping generalization, so it's not entirely fair, uh, but I would say most commencement speeches either fall into the follow your star, follow your heart, just do what you love and your heart won't mislead you variety. Um, or for those who have looked at that and they say, that's a bit shallow. Maybe we should do something more. Maybe just following your heart your whole life isn't actually a way to have a good and meaningful life. They will say things like, change the world. You are unique uh, out of all the people on earth. You have a special gifting and calling and passions. And if you just do these, no matter what resistances you have, you can change the world. Uh, and Christian, Christian commencement speeches often are the same. They're just dressed up with some Christian languages. So instead of follow your heart, uh, which, which uh, we know is um, fallen and, and therefore will mislead us, what we say is God has given you certain passions, but if you follow them and if you follow the gifts that he has given you, then you will truly live the life God wants you to live. And we even say stuff like, God has given you every single believer a unique calling, a unique and singular calling that they can do on the earth. Um, now mixed in that, by the way, is a lot of truth, right? I don't want to completely out of hand dismiss some of these commencement speeches. That being said, it's mixed up a lot of what if what our culture values that doesn't necessarily align with Scripture. Um, but instead of just dismissing entirely commencement speeches, I want to offer you an alternative. And so I think in 1 Thessalonians 4, we can find uh, what the Scripture says uh, for the Christian, what does it look like to have a meaningful and good life in Jesus? And it's going to sound a little bit different than your traditional uh, commencement speeches, and it's going to be challenging, and it's going to, and I'm going to say some things that you might find 
uh, to be a bit hard or a bit harsh. And what I ask from you then is if you hear something that, that feels like a personal attack or that feels like you just don't agree with it, what I ask is you to go to the scripture and say, is Josh saying this or is the scripture saying it? And if it's just me, dismiss it. That's fine. I'm okay with that. <laughs> that happens. I try to be as faithful as I can in preaching. If, it, if it's just me, though, erase it from your memory. If, however, it's the scripture, then what I ask is you to wrestle with that. I ask with to examine your own heart and your own motivations and say, why do I struggle with this? And how do I conform to what God says in Scripture? Because that's what the Christian life is about. The thing is, we have been bought at a price. The life we live is no longer our own to live. And I'll bring up that again later in the sermon. But the point is this. As Christians, we don't get to look at the Scripture and say, I don't like that. I'm not going to do it. We, I mean, we look at Scripture all the time if you're reading it carefully and say, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, we have to submit and we have to ask God to change our hearts so that, that as we faithfully obey, that he will change our hearts that we actually desire to obey as well. So with that, uh, what I want to do is I want to read this section of Scripture. So we're going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 12, and then I'm going to pray. So. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing and that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father, I pray that you would guide us um, as we dig into the word, that you would reveal it to us, you would reveal what you have to say and what your truth is in this, and that you would confront our sin, even our hidden sin, and that you would um, use your words to sink in, not just into our head, but into our hearts so that it changes our hearts and that we begin to desire what you desire and to hate what you hate. And then in that process are transformed. Father, guide us through your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So what I think this text is saying, to give you up front, um, and then we'll dig in why I think it's saying that, is this. That if you are a Christian, the life that you live, you must grow more and more in holiness, brotherly love, and in living a quiet life 
before the Lord. I think that sentence can sum up this entire section of Scripture, but let's dig into why I think it is saying that. So firstly, it says this in, in, in verse 1, it says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and, and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us, you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. So I want to pause here before going on. Notice this. One is that what is Paul asking them to do? Well, what he has already taught them. And we know from Acts that Paul uh, was able to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians. But very early on, with only a couple of weeks, he was kicked out of Thessalonians. And so he's writing them not too much longer after that because he's worried. He's like, well, um, you, you didn't have much time with me. I want to know how you're doing. And so he sends them Timothy and he finds they're actually living out what he has taught them to do which um, as anyone who has ever made disciples before and joined in that frustrating but amazing work, that is an amazing thing to hear. A very short time with them, and yet they're taking seriously the teachings of the Scripture. Um, but he, said, he doesn't just say, okay, I'm glad that you're doing the work. That's really it. That, that's all I'm writing you. No, he challenges them to not only what you are doing, but to do it more and more. And so when I say that you are called um, to grow more and more in holiness, the theological term for that is sanctification. So we see that in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that, that's just a term that means that as a follower of Christ, you grow more and more every moment, every day, all the way to the end of your life to be more like Jesus. And every thought and every desire and every word that you speak and in every action, you are more and more like Jesus. That's to sum it up really easily, right? Uh, or very clearly, I wouldn't say easily, but clearly. Um, that is what sanctification is about. And what Paul is saying here is that as Christians, this is what you are called to. In other words, you don't get to stop growing. You don't just say, ah, uh, you know what? I'm pretty good with my Bible reading. I'll stop here. Too much of a good thing, you know what I'm saying? We don't get to do that in our prayer life or in how well we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. What we're doing is we grow more and more and more. I will say, if at any point you feel that your prayer life and your scripture reading and your loving of your brothers and sisters is exactly the same as Jesus is, sure, then we can talk about it first. And if it's true, we can let you stop, right? <laughs> but if not, as Christians, we are called to grow more and more until Jesus returns at the end, and then he will make us completely like himself. And then it will be done. But until then, to live a Christian life is to live in sanctification. Another way we could say that is God cares far more about who you are than what you do. You see, the problem with all those commencement speeches is they stress what you do in this world and the impact you can make and the Christian term, the legacy that you leave, which aren't necessarily bad things, but they put the focus on the wrong part. God cares far more about who you are than what you do. Now, there's a theological attribute of God that I think would be helpful for us to remember, and that is simply this. God doesn't need anything, including you. 
Right? I remember teaching this theological point, like out of all creation, every piece of creation depends on something for its very existence. Right? We need food and we need water and we need sleep and we need other people to exist. But God in and of himself exists and is fully satisfied and complete without the rest of creation. And so I remember teaching this in junior high and most of the junior high was like, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Um, but one girl in particular, she said that, and you're like, God doesn't need me. That's so mean. <laughs> I go, you get it. Thank you. It sounds so mean at first, right? God doesn't need you. But when we really understand that, what we realize is, yes, God doesn't need us. But the fact that he wants us and chooses us is even more amazing and miraculous. And that's the truth of the Christian life. He does not need us. And so we think of these big moments of history, and oftentimes we want to be the, the big world-changing people that we see written down, right? The people that get written down in the history books that without their life, history would have never been the same. But when you examine history beyond the surface, what you realize is that God was already working. God didn't need these people to change history. He was doing it, and he would have done it if that person was not there. Instead, though, he chose to invite them in to that process. And when we get that, it frees us up. No longer are we responsible for saving the world. In fact, there is a, a mantra that Christians often repeat um, that is very helpful to us. So I'm going to say it, and I would love for you to repeat it back to me. This will help us a long way. It's very deep. I am not the Savior. All right? We don't have to save the world. Thank goodness. So we're not called to do these big earth and world-changing things. What we're called to is live a faithful life in Jesus. And if he chooses to use us to change the world, amazing. But if not, we're still called to live faithful lives in Jesus. Now, what does sanctification look like? And I think there are two parts. Uh, you see in other parts of Scripture, you talk about this taking off, and this putting back on. And I think you see that in this text as well. So we'll, we'll see the first part. So um, in verse 3 it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and then it continues, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And as we keep reading down, what the, the end goal is, is this, is that for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. So sanctification means growing in holiness. It means taking off impurity, putting on holiness. Now, this applies to all sin, by the way. Um, the example Paul uses is in sexual purity, and there's a reason for that. And it's the same reason that I'm going to stress that today. It's because our world has huge problems with this. Out of all the Christian teachings, this is the one that continually offends people, continually gets brought up. After all, as the world says, isn't love love? Why does God care who I sleep with? Right? <laughs> this gets brought up and again and again and again. And before I, miss, before I continue on the reasons that God gives boundaries, um, I do want to stress once again what I said earlier. As a Christian, 
This cannot be our question. Why? Because once again, we are not our own. We were bought at a price, and the life we live now is no longer our own to live. In other words, if God gave no other reason except for because I said so, that's enough for us. But guess what? Uh, one of my favorite phrases that I did not come up with, God is not some cosmic killjoy in the sky. He doesn't just give us boundaries because he doesn't like us having fun. In fact, I think the opposite might be more true. He cares very deeply that we live a joy-filled life. You see all those Christian lists of Christian virtues in the New Testament? You ever notice that joy keeps popping up? God cares that we have joy-filled lives, and in eternity, we will be filled with joy. The problem is, we don't really choose things that bring us joy. We choose things that bring us short-term pleasure. I mean, think about that. How many of you who have ever eaten such a sugar-filled meal that they feel terrible, headache afterwards, just miserable, and you knew before you ate the meal that you were going to feel miserable, but you're like, yeah, but it'll be good before that. <laughs> Human beings rush into destroying themselves if left on their own because we're fallen, and what we desire is not good for us often. And so the same thing, uh, one of, this is also not my own, I, I learned it from someone else. To answer that question, why does God care who we sleep with? He cares because he cares about the people doing the sleeping. He cares because sex was a gift from him. And he cares because within the boundaries that God gives, it is a good and powerful and beautiful thing. He cares because outside of those boundaries, it can destroy us, and it can cause great harm. But there's another reason as well that we see right here in this text. So I want to read this section here. So um, in verse 6, we see that one of the reasons that we are supposed to live as followers of Jesus' pure lives is this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now I want to talk a little bit about grammar, and I realize that's boring, but it's important here. Uh, I actually, I to be honest, I had to pick Joe's brains at least like five times on this idea because I'm not good with grammar apparently. But the English language doesn't do gendered languages, so we often trip up in the Bible when it says words like brother because that is a masculine term. And if we're not careful, we read that and we read, okay, only men really uh, fall into sexual immorality. Now we use any bit of logic, we know that's not true, right? Um, but it says here brothers, right? And you can only defraud your brother in that matter. And so our interpretation of this is when you commit sexual immorality, you're robbing that woman's husband. Now that might be a small slice of the truth, but what we have to understand here is that term brother is talking about our siblings in Jesus, right? So that is brother or sister. And the point of it is this. Our sin does not stay with us. That's not just about um, purity and, and sexual immorality, by the way, either. When we, when we ask that same question, why does God care about my money? I earned that. That is a sin, right? And that sin doesn't just stay with us. It's not just our money. It's not just our consequences of our sin. It echoes out and harms the people in our lives. 
Sin never stays with you. All right? Sin, the consequences of sin are never just consequences on you. Look at Adam. The very first sin brought to earth and the consequences of that are still being felt by every single human being in existence to today. And so when God is telling us that he desires our purity and our holiness, and when he says, do not rob your Christian brothers and sisters in this matter, he's saying it because our sin doesn't stay with us. When we commit acts of impurity, we are defrauding the person we commit them with. We are, we are defrauding the people they are in relationship with. We're defrauding the people in our lives that we're in relationship with. And it continues to echo out farther than we can possibly understand in that moment. You've heard of generational sin, right? It's not that the father's sin is held by God against them, right? We, we see that Jesus comes in and he says each person is held responsible for their own sin. But what happens is one person's sin affects the next person and the next person and the next person. We see that tragically in, in abuse. We see that an abusive person has often been abused in the past. And so it just echoes and echoes and echoes. And you think in this moment, my sin is my own. Why does anyone care? But we don't get to decide that. Even think about, um, even, oftentimes if you've ever had to disciple a young man, one thing that comes up is their issue with the computer in the area of purity, right? And they think alone in their room, they're not harming anyone else but themselves. But if we paid attention to the news, we know this. We know that oftentimes the person, if you are one of these people who struggle with pornography, the people that you are getting pleasure out of are not often there by choice. They're being abused for your pleasure, and your choice to watch it is one of the reasons why they are there. You are guilty. That's what God says, right? Our sin has made us guilty before him, and if you have not repented before him, you are guilty. And the only way to be relieved of that is by God taking that guilt from us. It echoes and it echoes, but I don't want to even leave us with that. What about just in your own mind, right? What we see in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said was that even if you look at another person lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart, and that sin has defrauded your brother or your sister, and it does not stay with you. So God calls us to a sanctified life where we grow more and more in holiness and in purity. But that is the taking off, right? What does putting on look like? So we see here, uh, verse 9, now concerning brotherly love. You see, if the putting off is the putting off of impurity and unholiness, the putting on of holiness often is loving your brothers and sisters in Christ well. We take off impurity so that we can put on love. That's the end, right? What did Jesus sum up the whole law? Is love God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. See, not sinning in and of itself is just a means to the ends of loving better. And sin keeps us from loving. But we keep going. We see this. Now, um, interestingly enough, Paul gives one of these rare, like, 
you guys are doing amazing in this moment in this letter. He goes, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I encourage you to read First Thessalonians, a very short book you can do on your own uh, this week. But one of the things you notice is that the very short time with them, and yet everyone in the surrounding area knew that they had been changed by the gospel, by the way they lived and the way they loved. Now I suspect, while no one needs to write to the Thessalonians about uh, brotherly love, we may need a little more help, right? So that's the question I want you guys to think. How have you been practically loving your brothers and sisters? Not just in the world. I want to narrow it down to you so it can be tangible. How are you doing at loving your brothers and sisters in this room? How many of you have reached out to each other during this pandemic, seen how you're doing? Those who haven't been here, hey, where have you been? Uh, those who are struggling with, with jobs and with money right now, how many of you know that they're struggling? How many of you have even stepped in and helped out in tangible ways? Now, I don't say this to guilt you because on the other hand is many of you have, and I've seen that, and I've heard your stories, and I've been encouraged by that. Many of you are loving really well, but Paul doesn't stop there, right? Because he says, even to the Thessalonians... But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Don't stop there. If you've reached out to your brothers and sisters, if you've prayed for them, if you've helped them, awesome. Keep doing it more and more and more. Don't stop. Keep pushing into this area. Now we see the taking off and we see the putting on, but what else about a Christian life in this fallen world? What does it mean to follow Jesus. And this is where I think some of us may have a hard time. You've been, if you've been listening now, um, even though you may struggle in some of these areas, like we all do, you at least agree. You're like, yeah, absolutely. I can see that teaching in the scripture. Well, this next verse, if you're anything like me, you read it and you don't like what you read. So let me read verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, the picture God gives for the Christian life, the normal one that all of us are called to live, is not what we would normally call exciting. You see, in a world that values big and famous and fast and views success by numbers, a quiet life of faithfully working with your hands while minding your own business, taking after your own affairs, sounds crushingly boring. I mean, uh, I've been there, right? I mean, if you look at my life before, uh, one of the things that called me into ministry, I got to go around the world. I got to spend a month in each country doing the work of missions. And while, yes, part of that was this excitement to... Um, work with the church and see what God was doing, if I'm fully honest bit about my motives, a lot of that motivation was this restlessness of wanting to see more and to do more and to get all the excitement out of life. The idea of planting myself in one place for a long time seemed like death. And in a way it is. Dying to my own self, right? Thankfully, God in his infinite mercy 
use that trip to let me see the value of it. Because what happened was, month was just long enough to see that, yes, if I stayed there long term, I could see amazing and beautiful fruit, but I didn't. I had to leave <laughs> again and again and again. And he planted in me this desire that like, hey, I'm going to call you somewhere local to stay for a long time, to put down roots and to see the fruit that I can have in an ordinary, simple life of faithfully obeying me. And I've only been here a year, but the value of that I've seen is, is just incredible. And it's what we're called to. I'm not saying that God might not use some of you in this room to do amazing history-making things. What I am saying is don't go looking for that. If God calls you to that awesome, obey him even into it. But what you should look for is to live a quiet life of minding your own affairs where you work with your hands and you walk properly before outsiders and you grow in holiness and in brotherly love. That is what the Christian life is about. And if we can get it, if, if we can fight off our flesh enough to trust God in this, what we can see is this is actually incredibly freeing. Remember, I am not the Savior. I don't have to change the world. I don't have to live my life for every single passion and pleasure that I have in my life. Instead, I trust God, and I faithfully grow in Him, grow in sanctification, faithfully living my life, and I trust that He will actually begin to even change my desires so that I will desire that. Now, what does that mean practically, though? To live quietly and to mind your own affairs. This is difficult for us in a social media world. Uh, the illustration I give, like in a world where one of the phrases thrown around is that silence is violence, right? Some of you might have heard that idea if that you don't speak up for every injustice in the world, then you are a part of it. And can I just say that's exhausting? Like, the world is broken and fallen. Like, to speak up for everything, to be a part of everything, means you're not really doing anything significant, right? So there's the practical side of things. But there's also the practical side that, like, very few of us are called to speak out on a national and global scale. Most of us, though, and this is where minding our own affairs come into play, most of us are called to call it out where we see it. Right? So, yes, we might not be called to speak up and to declare the evils of injustice and racism in all of America. But if we hear a racist comment from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called in that moment to tell your brother or your sister that you are sinning. If we see, we may not be called to call out the national injustices that we see on poor people, but we are called we see someone in the body of Christ who is struggling financially to step in and help them as we have means. Right, mining your own affairs doesn't mean living a life where you only think about yourself and only care about yourselves. But it is knowing that God has planted you in a local place for a time, and that is where you are called to. Because why? I am not the what? Yes, I don't have to save the world, thank you. But we do get to join God into the work that he is doing here in a local place for a local time. In addition to that, 
minding our own affairs. Well, yes, we are called to call out sin when we see it on our brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean we go looking for it, right? That doesn't mean we get to share our concerns about our brothers and sisters to others around us in the name of praying for them, right? We have a way of sugarcoating sin to make it sound like a virtue. It's not. We know that. Let's stop doing it, right? Um, and, and I know, like, I'm just as guilty in this sometimes as, as everyone, but it is, is not what we are called to. We are called to better than that. In addition to that, we're called to work with our hands. And this interesting thing, it says, be dependent on no one. Now, once again, there are times in your life where you have to be dependent on your brothers and sisters in Christ, where circumstances arise where you can't do everything. But what we see with the Thessalonians is, as we read on, they, they heard from Paul about the coming of the Lord, and they're like, well, if Jesus is coming soon, what am I doing spending time at my job? Like, this kind of pointless. And so some of them stopped working and expected other people to help feed them out of their generosity. Paul goes, no, if you don't work, you go hungry. This is what it's talking about. It's not talking about unforeseen circumstances that come in your life and require you to ask for help. Because as Christians, we are a family. We are not solo and independent. But it is saying faithfully work. And to recognize that all work, if it is not sinful work, is glorifying and honoring to God. And it is our worship. So what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And what do I call all of us, but especially our graduates, to look forward as they move into the future? It is this to grow more and more in holiness and brotherly love and in living a quiet life before the Lord. And if you do that, God will use it in amazing ways, and you will see people around you come to him because of it. And honestly, even if that doesn't make a history book, that is more miraculous than anything we see in a history book. Changed heart is the biggest miracle of all, I think. So that I'm going to pray, and then we're going to honor our graduates. So. Father, thank you so much for your word and your encouragement in it, and I pray that we would take it seriously, um, that we would search the scripture this week and see how it speaks to our lives right here, right now in Chillicothe, and how we can conform ourselves to what you are calling us to in your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.